You are listening to a Music Secrets Exposed podcast documentary series in association with Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation. Episode 2, Cascadology and Playing for Whales at Sea. episode you told the story of transitioning from New York to Hawaii and how the waterfalls and the natural environment of Hawaii really affected you so deeply and how you met a fantastic spiritual teacher there by the name of Hannah Veary as well who influenced you very much but you also discovered something else called cascadeology or cascadeology how do you pronounce Cascadology, yes. Yeah, can you tell us more about that? Because it had an impact on some people's lives that changed their lives for the good. Thank you. Um, Cascadology is just the two words of cascade, meaning waterfall, and ology, which is study of. So cascadology is the study of waterfalls. And uh, that's something that happened to me when I was living in Maui and during the time of... uh, Actually, before I met Hamadiri, when I was living in uh, uh, Maui in Hana, that beautiful t- place I told you about, with plenty of waterfalls. Every day I would go swimming in a different waterfall. Uh, and the one part that we did tell in our last episode uh, that was important was that there was a, a gentleman, he was an older gentleman. Uh, we were young. I mean, I was in my early 30s. And this gentleman, he must have been 50, 60. Uh, And there was something wrong. He couldn't walk very well. Uh, So we decided that what we would do is to help him. And so we, he was on crutches. So we brought him in a car to a waterfall that was easy to get out of the car and walk to. Uh, And so we brought him down a path, uh, two of us or three of us, we held him, made sure he was okay, step by step. We got him to the waterfall, put down his crutches, uh, and then um, we got him all set up on a blanket and gave him some apples or whatever it was, papaya, <clears throat> and just got him comfortable. Uh, and then we told him the waterfall would be cool. One of us went into the waterfall, showed him it would be safe. And then uh, we told him we would help walk him into the waterfall. These were the pools, the pool of the waterfall. The waterfall was in the distance. And the pool was right here. That's what you do. You go into these pools, you swim around for a while and just, it's cold and just feel how great it is, the fresh water. And you come up out and you get the sun for a while and then you go back in and you do this process for several times. So this man we thought would be helped by going into a waterfall. So okay, we got him comfortable. Then we stood him up, he got his crutches. He went to the very edge of the pool and then someone held his hand who was in the pool and then we held his other hand and we walked him down into the water, into the pool. We got him into the pool, his crutches were 
left back. And now we were holding him, helping him float and getting used to the cool water. Uh, the, uh, even though it's tropics, this water came down from 10,000 feet or maybe 8,000 feet. And so, you know, it was rather chilly water by the time we got to the sea. So he, uh, he goes in there and then he starts to swim around. He's free. Uh, and, you know, he just starts to move around. He can swim nicely and he's swimming and we're having a great time. And then he comes, comes to the edge and we help him up and he gets his crutches and he goes, sits down. And then we give him some more fruit. He relaxes, takes in some sun. Uh, and then after maybe an hour or so, uh, sun and shade, uh, eat some guavas off the trees, uh, then bring him back to the pool. So we bring him back a second time into the pool and he goes in there and it's wonderful. He swims around, he's happy, you know, he's whistling. It, it's good, we're having a great time with him. Uh, and then he's happy and he comes out and says, this is the best experience of my entire life. He was so overjoyed. And so uh, <laughs> what happened was that he, uh, uh, we did this three or four times. Uh, and he just was so enervated by the fresh water, uh, by the negative ions that come from the falling of water. Those negative ions, you can't see them, but they just come around you and they may help you feel better. They enervate you. It's like getting a bubbly bath. And then you come out, you get the sun, you get the fresh fruit. You know, it, it all works. We did it about three or four times with him in the course of the afternoon. And, you know, he had suntan oil on. And we kept him sure that he wasn't getting sunburned. We did all the right things to help him. Finally, when we were complete, we brought him out of the pool, dried him off. Then he got dressed and got ready to go back to the car. We brought him back to the car. And he says, I feel so much better. And we were very happy, and then we drove him home. Uh, and he um, uh, called me the next day. He said, I am feeling a lot, lot better. In fact, <clears throat> I'm walking without my crutches. It's amazing. He was really shocked. He said, take me back there again. I need to go. You know, I said, yeah, we'll, we'll arrange it. And so we did, but we, we took him there several times over a course of maybe a month and a half, we took him there for three or four times. Then we brought him to another waterfall, a little, little bit more difficult to get to, but we brought him there and he just loved it. And finally, when he was completed with this whole session, he was walking without crutches. This healed wow. him. And how long had he the crutches, do you know? I, I don't know. You don't know? No, but it was, it was, it was, uh, it definitely was a problem that it happened for quite a while. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, it was. So it was like getting his life back, really. He got his life back. He was actually walking. Yeah. Uh, and so then at that point, because I've been studying natural health in many ways, massage and all these things for, a number of years before the meeting this man, I realized, oh my gosh, there is a new study out now that I can make cascadology, the study of waterfalls. 
cascadology. That's how it happened. And so I never really, I wrote a book on it, or some notes for a book, but I, I never really made it into something big. But now that we're talking about it, I'm going to bring this back from the defunct. <laughs> Those waterfalls sounds like when you take in the natural environment of Hawaii, the way you describe it, and the falling water with the ions, and then the movement of the body in the water, then you're thinking of the healthy diet. And that whole scene combines in so much, includes so much. It has to really have a positive effect compared to lying on a bed in a hospital. Well, yes, because you're surrounded by amazing green. The cliffs are all... Uh, all this filled with beautiful green plants uh, yeah. and it's almost free it's, it's like a prehistoric scene it's primeval with the energy the energy there you're you're kind of out of city like living you're you're in real natural environment full of this high energy as well which is a trigger i presume including the water is acting as a trigger for repairing health well, I, I, the trigger would not be my word, but it, it's definitely uh, uh, correct in the way the way you're saying it. Uh, the the water is is the basic element of life. Uh, and yes, so very being true. Being in fresh water that comes down from rainwater from the mountains. Uh, that's all, all rainwater that they're swimming in. You also said in um, a previous time I was speaking with you on this subject, you said that you got the man in question to really look at the water and look at his surroundings. Yes. yes. And can you just talk a bit more about that? What did you actually get him to, did you, like, how did you get him to calm down his mind? Well, one way is something that we described to you uh, previously. That was, is that when you are looking at a waterfall, uh, a good one where the water is just really coming down you take your eye and you move it toward the top of the waterfall and you don't you just keep your eye focused on a certain place where water is falling all that falling water uh, and, and you just watch that you don't move your eye one way or the other you stay focused on that for two or three four even five minutes if you can and then the moment that you take your eyes off of that, uh, what's happened is that because all that downward movement has made the eye, I forget the actual or physical term, but the photons in the eye, uh, it's probably a better word than that, photons in the eye are used to the downward motion. Suddenly, as you move your eye to look over onto the hill, uh, the cliffs, uh, green cliffs, everything suddenly goes up you have all this upward motion, you know, you, you don't, nothing does go up, but it looks like it's all going up. It, it, it's very, very, almost, it's like a natural hallucinogen, and, uh, and it's, it's beautiful. And so that can help you really focus. That can help you. Um, and we use that tool mainly to help people to center themselves. So that's part of cascadology. Okay, so you're going to write this book up and yes. have it for people to study and use for their own needs. Yes, I will, because this, this has triggered me to start doing that. I'm good. I will. Yes, absolutely.
1974, you were living in Ho how do you pronounce that island's name? Oahu is the capital. Oahu. Oahu is where Honolulu, Honolulu is. It's the capital okay. island. And you had a really unique experience. Can you tell us about this experience? It involves whales. Can you tell us this story? What happened? Yes. What happened was that I... Um, this is one of the great stories of my life. So let me take a little bit of time here to gather my thoughts. And uh, this is the moment. I was, I'll tell the longer story here. Uh, in our last episode, we spoke of Eau Valley, I-A-O, Eau Valley. It's a sacred valley known to the Hawaiian people, the ancient Hawaiians. And it's easy to get to, you can drive into it, and then you have to park your car, and then you can walk some paths. Very sacred valley, you should ask permission of the gods to go in if, uh, if you can, if you're really in tune with the place. So I would go there, and then there was a stream, and then I'd walk across the stream. There was a meadow. It was a very private place, away from all the tourists and so forth. And I, I opened up my blanket, just took it out, and took off my clothes and started doing some yoga postures. It was just really nice to be naked in nature with no one around me. And that was the thing people did in Maui. You know, was, you don't do it here. Uh, but we did it there. That, in the 60s, that was the time to do it. So, uh, the 70s, rather. So, anyway, um, while I was there, I was doing the, hand, the, um, the handstand or the headstand. I was upside down holding my, holding my uh, head down in my hands like this. And my body was straight up. I was upside down. My favorite posture. I could do that for 45 minutes. 45 minutes? I could do it for 45 wow. minutes, yes. In those days. I, I mean, I did yoga twice a day, and I was really good at it. And the headstand was just the best of them all for me. Uh, all the blood came back down to my body and to my brain. My, my brain was being filled with blood. You know, and that's why I liked it. But you know, too long is not too good either. Okay, so I'm looking upside down and there I see across the stream where I just walked from, there was another smaller meadow and there was a young couple or a couple um, uh, who set up a blanket and uh, brought out some food to picnic over there. Well, I was naked, they, they, they saw me and I said, oh, I better get down from this pose and put my, my bathing suit on. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a little embarrassed. That I, I was sorry that they had to experience that. So I came across the, gathered my things, and I came across the uh, um, stream. And I walked over to them, and I said, uh, I'm really sorry. I apologize. I didn't mean to embarrass you. I just thought I was in a private place. And they said, oh, no, no. We do it all the time at home. No big problem at all. <laughs> so that was all really nice and well. And then they told me that they were visiting Maui because uh, the man, his name was John. Um, I won't give last names here. Uh, and so John was a producer who was making a film, going to make a film in Maui. 
about to see whether or not music would communicate with humpback whales. That was the that was the purpose of his film. So music with humpback whales. Right. What would music would music communicate with humpback so whales? So all about this That's what communication. Was. Okay. Right, because we didn't have verbal communication with whales then or even now we don't. We have the rudiments, but we don't really have it yet. Uh, and, but at that time, would, would music communicate with whales? No one knew. So uh, he was renting a, a beautiful uh, white uh, boat, a sloop. A sloop is a, uh, has a, a high sail that has, goes out in both directions so that it's able to catch the wind thoroughly and go quite fast. This was a 70-foot sloop. It was called the Sea Runner. I'm not sure if it's still in operation. I don't, I think it's been retired after all these years. We're talking the 1970s. The, the year was 1974, the late 97, maybe in fall 74. Okay. Um, okay. So they're, they're doing uh, this film about whales. And I say, well, that's a great, well, what kind of music are you gonna use to play for the whales? He said, well, we're thinking about a guitar. Guitar. Uh-huh, <laughs> that's what I say, guitar. Okay. Guitar, that's a pretty weak instrument for whales. I mean, you want something big like a piano, you know? And I told him who I was, that I played piano, I was a composer and all. <laughs> A beautiful piano, blah, blah, blah. I told him all that stuff. And I said, look, uh, here's my card. Please call me and uh, come visit me. I'll make you dinner and I'll play for you. I'd like you to hear my music. And I'll give you a cassette. So they called me the uh, following week. And we uh, had a very nice time. They came up and I made a lovely dinner. And we had music. And I played my heart out on my big, beautiful piano. Uh, and uh, he was uh, very, very excited, this man. He said, uh, that's beautiful music. I gave him a cassette. So he and his wife uh, went back, uh, left and went back to where they were renting a, a condo. All right, so I figured, well, hopefully I'll be able to do this gig. Who knows? A couple of weeks later, I get a call from him. He's very animated, really excited. He says, Paul, he says, the first films that were done by filmmakers of the humpback whales this season, they've come to me and they're showing these to me, these first raw films. Uh, and I'm seeing them for the first time. And we, we, we turned on your music and your music works perfectly with the film. That's the way they turned around did their thing. Your music is perfect. We want your music. Just like that, with really excited, animated. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything better. I mean, you know, no, no matter what, it's impossible. All right, so I uh, got very excited and they said, we want you, but only one under one condition. I thought, what's this? I said, we want you to get a white grand piano. Ooh, a white piano. Because the cell mode is white. Uh, right, the white grand piano, sailboat is white, the sails are white, pure white. We want, the deck is white, we want a white grand piano on, on the sailboat. If you could manifest one, you know, we'll pay to get it on and everything, but we need a white grand piano. 
So I said, okay, I'll find one. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have, I'm a hopeful kind of person, positive thinker, as we talked about last time. So I said, okay, I have a big problem on my hands, I have a, a challenge on my hands, rather. I have to manifest a white jazz piano, someone who'll loan it to me to bring it on a boat <laughs> to play for whales at sea. I mean, you know, this is going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me to play whales live at sea. Who gets to do that? That never happened in history. And this man is willing to put up the money. He's, he's making a film. It's a documentary uh, to see if the music would communicate with the whales. So I got very excited and I made some calls around. And someone told me that someone I knew, a good friend of mine named Jim, I'll give his last name, Jim Loomis, lived in the jungle. Uh, and he had a, uh, he lived in a place called Waylo, H-U-E-L-O, Waylo. And that was kind of an undercover jungle area uh, that he, he had bought. Land was very cheap uh, when there at that time. And so he bought a few acres of land. However, because it was under the canopy uh, and not within reach of helicopters, what he did was he built himself a home, not legally. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the jungle, like, so it was really damp. I'm thinking piano and jungle. Right. How does, the, how, exactly, how does this match? <laughs> it doesn't, and that's the exact story. You're ahead of the story, that's perfect. Yes. Um, so I then, he gave me directions, I drove out there. Uh, I parked and then I had to walk a quarter of a mile down a small dirt path. In the jungle. To get to his home. In the jungle, but it was just a clear yeah, path. Yeah. And, and, and we're not talking about Amazon. No, 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 jungle. no. But I mean, I can just yeah. imagine the humidity because being a pianist, I can see you've got the humidity and you've got the piano and you need a white piano. So how is this going to work out? Go ahead. I get to his house and, you know, he and I were good friends. And so a good hug and everything. There's my piano. It was kind of a little off-white, but it was old, very old piano. Had I said, do you play it? He said, no, I never play it. We just keep it here. All right, so I then uh, sit down. The keys are all brown. And, uh, no one had washed the keys for all these years, cleaned them up. Uh, and then I opened up the lid, and I looked inside. I said, oh, my God, this is impossible. The strings were all rusty. As you imagine, the jungle, right? Rusty strings. Know? He had no, he, he had no glass. He had no glass windows. Yeah. Everything was open air. Everything. Okay. So he lived there for years, yeah. uh, and so the insides of the piano was a disaster. So it sounds oh such God. a disaster. What is this thing going to sound like? What's it going to sound like? I, said, I had no idea. So I sat down to the piano, started to play it, and I'm just getting this. Oh, like clunky. I can't even describe how bad the sound I was. I can't it was imagine just, how it would even it was work. Groaning. Yeah. It was groaning. Uh, I mean, and there were keys that didn't work at yeah. all, you yeah. know, important keys to me. And, uh, but I played hard. I played it down. And then suddenly I sort of got some kind of music out of it. I banged it hard and played it. I'm a very, uh, you know, tender player. Uh, sensitive player 
But oh my God, I had to really go down on these things to extract any kind of tone. And then we're coming up onto rusty, rusty, uh, um, uh, uh, rusty strings. So <laughs> when they hit the rusty strings, that you can see little pieces of rust all just fly out. Oh my God! Yeah, it was a, it was a disaster. But you know, it was the only thing that there was around, and it was white. Yeah. And there was no way to get it tuned. I mean, you couldn't—you'd have to re redo the strings. You have to restring the piano. Mm -hmm. That happens in in Honolulu. Yeah. You have to move the piano to Honolulu. Okay. It would take months to get the piano mm -hmm. ready, and, and a great amount of money. Uh, so, uh, um, what happened was that I decided we're going to do this anyway. We're going to make this work. Mm -hmm. This is all we have. And I don't think the Wells are going to care about a really well-tuned piano. As long as I can extrapolate some kind of music out of this thing. Can't, I can't imagine it. I just, I, I'm just, no, visu I'm just visualizing it. Like you're looking at a, a piano with rusty strings and you're going to pull music out of it for the whales. How is that going to work? Well, I actually, I made it work. I made it work. Yeah. I, uh, here's what happened. So, all right. So, um, this was in the fall of 75. Uh, and then the, uh, I told the, I told John, the producer that, okay, fine. I found a piano. It doesn't sound too good. It's old, but I think that we can make it work. He said, great. He said, fine. So we arranged the date. I think it was late January, 76. Uh, uh, hoping to that it could be February, but somewhere around there. Uh, and so we uh, had a range. So, uh, so my friend Jim, Jim Loomis, who owned the piano, arranged about six o'clock in the morning, five in the morning, he'd have about three strong guys because we had to take the piano, take off the legs, take off the, mute, the pedal stand, and then put, put the piano on their shoulders my shoulders too. We all had to guide the piano down that quarter of a mile path. <laughs> and so uh, it was all guided down that path and then got to a, a pickup truck, as we call it here in the States. And we put it in the big back of the pickup truck, uh, piano and all. And then we all got in our cars and drove around the island. Now, where Whalo is located, it's in the east part of Maui under the jungle. You have to drive up to the main road, then you have to drive all the way around uh, the east part of Maui until you reach the west part of Maui, until you get to the town of Mahaina. Mahaina is the, was the kind of the capital buzzing town of West Maui. That's where all the money was being produced. There were shops there, restaurants, a lot of tourists and so forth. Uh, so that took a whole hour to get to Mahaina. There was a wharf there, and, and a small wharf, and then we could just drive out to the wharf, and the sea runner was was parked right there or anchored right there, uh, and they brought a hoist out, and then with that hoist from the ship, then we got a cradle and they put the cradle on the hoist for the piano, took the piano out, put it on the cradle, nice and safe and sound. Jim was there. He said he wanted to come to this because it was his piano. I got him onto this thing. 
And so we brought the piano on board. And we settled it down midship, um, not quite midship, toward mid end of the ship. Uh, and then we roped it down. So we not around. So here's what was going to happen is that when we got out to the whales, we were putting microphones right over the strings of the piano. There was a 500 watt amplifier. And the, we had huge underwater speakers that were borrowed from the US Navy. And this was 1975, you said? Six. 76. 70, so you got the piano yeah. in, 75. you got the piano in five, and now you're putting it into use in 1976. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the piano remained at Jim's house. It was his piano. Yeah. But mm -hmm. we, uh, we, uh, we secured it in, in late 75 and in early 76. I think it was late January 76. From okay. third or fourth week of January, uh, that was the time we're doing this. And so he had a lot invested because he had underwater divers to film it. Uh, you know, he had uh, a huge thing. Did you have a lot of people looking at this piano getting onto a sloop? Like it must, you must have had to look, people turning their heads going, what's yeah, going on with those guys? Yeah, there were all kinds of people walking on the wharf. It was a short wharf. Uh, yeah. And it was right there in the center of town. Everyone walked out to the watch the yeah. sunset, things like that. And there were not always boats anchored by it. But this time there was, and yeah, they were onlookers. <laughs> I'm sure people said, what the heck? A piano is being just hoisted over here? What's going on in that boat? Well, what's it was going the news on, of that month. <laughs> what's going on in that boat at that very moment was yeah. the fact that, uh, that it was uh, just the most beautiful time in my life just to imagine that I could go out and play for whales. So, Amazing. So the technology was that there was the strings over the piano. Then there was, when you get out there, the underwater speakers and then the big 500 watt amplifier. And so I started playing the piano just while we were right at the wharf before we got out there. I had a practice system. I started banging it. There were some bad keys. I had to avoid those keys and just really get this thing going, you know, get it going. I mean, the lid is open, you know, we're we're not at sea yet, but we're on, on the ocean. I don't care where all that rust goes, you know, I'm just banging. And slowly by slowly, I get some kind of modicum of tone. There's a little bit of tone starts coming out of the groan of this thing. As uh, an old piano from the 1920s or something. I don't know how old it was. And uh, that uh, we, I, I started to really feel some music in there. Well, meanwhile, we set sail. Uh, and okay. John had, a, a, right behind Lahaina, there's a, a little mountain, there's a hill called Lahaina Luna. It's a few hundred feet up, but at least you get a good view if you go up there. And they situated a couple of people with binoculars to look out to see to see where the whales would be. This is winter time. This is the time when the whales. And how how far out in terms of miles? I suppose nautical miles. Like how far out would you have been from the wharf? 
in the water? Well, we were going out to the well. So I would say we mm -hmm. went out at least about 25, 30 nautical miles. That's quite Because a remember that the whales uh, uh, come to Hawaii for their winter. They winter in Hawaii. And so yeah. that's why we were doing it in the winter. Obviously, the only time to do it when you find these whales. Uh, you don't go to the Arctic to do it. It's just too huge a project in the Arctic. Yeah, of course. The yeah. sweetness of the tropics where they come. This is where they give birth and where they mate and where they just relax and do their thing. They don't eat very much. All their eating has been done up in the Arctic. So they don't come to eat there. Uh, and so that's not happening. Uh, they've already eaten and they're holding all that food in their in their systems uh giving giving them the energy they need so okay so now we're sailing out and yes they uh, people on Lahaina Luna do discover they see some spouting they see some tails way out there uh and so we go out in that direction when we finally arrive in the area we see whales around us and we see tails and we see spouting so we stop the boat, we take the sails down, and we just float. Well, at that time was the right time. Meanwhile, I'm playing all the way as we get there, uh, and I'm finally getting tone. I'm finally getting some kind of sound. I mean, the answer to your earlier question, well, what happens with all that old sound? I'm finally getting something here, and it's almost like by playing it loudly and hard, practicing all that time, I was able to knock it into relative attunement. I mean, amazing. not cultural amazing. but relative yeah. attunement. Were you playable, like, that you could actually get something out of it? I, I could get it to play. I knew that I'd be able to do that, uh, but I'd have to just play it hard for a while. I was pretty exhausted by the time I got to play it. I was tired from that hour, hour and a half long voyage out there. I was exhausted. But nevertheless, this was the greatest moment of my life, and I'm gonna I'm gonna live it all the way through. So yeah. okay, so then now everything was down. We're just floating in the water, and then suddenly to one side of the ship, I didn't see this moment. A whale came just jumping out, and it, the action is called spy hopping. Okay, humpback whales will jump out of the water and spy out in order for them. And for for those who don't know about humpback whales, give us a sense of the size. Uh, yes. Say, would it be as big as a double-decker bus or a car or? Larger. How would you, larger? larger? Yeah, they're, uh, they're about 60 tons. Um, wow. 60 tons, uh, 40 to 60 tons, depending on male and female. So when they do their spy hopping, they're going to make, it's going to make huge movement on the water. Huge. Yeah, exactly. What they have to do is they have to go down under the water and propel with their tails very strongly. They have to go down about a thousand feet. And then they- A thousand feet? A thousand feet just to gain the momentum. And so they, yes, yes. they then they just use their tails wildly as strongly as they can. And they have the longest, uh, they have a, the longest uh, fin span of any whales. Okay. The fin spans are, are no whale has the fin. So they fly through the water, they're like wings. They fly through the water. 
and uh, then with all that momentum of coming up from underneath a thousand feet or so, then they just come up, up out of the water. They can just jump out of the water and their tails are up above the water. And there, there they are. And so people saw the eye of the whale just looking at the boat at them. And that was on the far side, over on the other side of the sail. I didn't see it. Yeah. I really missed it. I was so sorry. They didn't have time to photograph it because it just came up so suddenly. But yes. we were all told about it and very excited. Uh, spy hopping is usually, usually what it does is that when a whale comes up like that to look around, they also plunge down right back to the water and make an enormous slap on the surface of the water with their body. And that noise, that slap, that whole incredible power of their bodies hitting the water at 60 tons. Uh, what that does is that it, it communicates with other whales who might be around. And especially okay. any, any kind of creature who is not welcome around us, stay away because we have the power. And that power is just in the way, in, in the fall of the whale on that way. We've got so much power, don't even come near us. Yeah. And, okay. and then uh, when they do it up in the Arctic, it is thought that they are, when they come up there, that they take so much food in, they just scoop their food in by the tons, which is just krill, little, little tiny baby shrimp, krill. Yeah, yes. They eat krill, yeah. uh, which mm -hmm. is very healthy, by the way. And they, they take that krill and then they have to, they jump up up on the water so they can digest it and throw all, all that krill into their stomachs. Uh, this is the pressure of them coming up like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. these are all theories. I mean, they're not really mm -hmm. proven, but that's why that's why we're they do a spy hop as far as we know. Okay. All right. So the first one happened on the other side of the sail. I didn't see it. But then again, magically, another one happened where I saw it and we got to film it. Oh, and the, wow. And the whale just came up out of the water, still no, no, more than 30, 50 feet away from the boat. Really, really close. And that eye, huge eyes, is looking right at us. Wow. Wow. Because these waters have been safe for many years and whaling has stopped. So they knew that we were not a danger to them. But who the heck were we? What's going on here? Why are these folks? Yeah, this here? is like this is odd. This is strange. Yeah, this strange music, strange piano. No, no music yet. No music yet. Oh, no music yet. Yeah, yeah. Now is the time to start the music. Now we know the whales are there. Ooh, They're okay. around us. So underwater speaker goes down there. Uh, uh, amplifiers all set up. I'm playing the underwater. There's two divers in the divers. The films are already there. And they go underwater and they start filming. And I'm playing, and I'm playing, and the piano's getting better tuned, I'm in better control of the piano, a little less banging, but strong, and I'm playing my music to the whales, and it's just a beautiful thing. I, I'm, wow, I'm playing my piano music to whales at sea. You well, you were the first it? person that did that, of am course, I right? Yeah, the first person in history. You were the first person in history that played music to the whales. To play music to the whales live at sea. At sea, that's what I'm saying. Right, yeah. 
There was yeah. another American named Paul Horn. He went to this, uh, went just to the side of the ship or something and had a flute and played music to the dolphins. But, yeah. uh, but it wasn't quite the same thing. Uh, I think he was, but no, he didn't go on a boat. He was right on, on the side with dolphins come. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and that was a wonderful thing that he did. So yeah. that was my predecessor. Here is live piano music at sea and amplified well underwater. They can hear the thing. And, and were they able to see what happened underwater? You saw what was happening above water. Well, so yes, no, they had under, we had underwater divers who went underwater uh, to see. And what did they see? Well, they would come up uh, and they would change the film and, and, and they said, this is amazing. This is amazing. They are doing underwater somersaults. They're just going deep down. They're coming up for air and going back down and they're doing somersaults around the ship. Amazing. There Amazing. were three or four of them and they just, uh, uh, just, uh, they were so amazed that they reloaded their film real fast and went back down. And yeah. I'm having the time of my life. Everyone on the boat. And who else was on the boat? John Lilly himself was invited to come. Yeah. John Lilly, at that time, he's the man who wrote, uh, way back in the 60s, he wrote uh, a great book called uh, Something with the Dolphins, uh, uh, Communicating with Dolphins. I forget the okay. exact title. And okay. he, he's a scientist, uh, and he, he, at that time, he's one of the leading people in the world who had studied whales scientifically. And he had a research okay. lab who worked on that. It was a very- so he, was, he was the lead, he was leading that whole study. He, was a, he wasn't leading our study. Our study was the producer of the film. No, but what I'm saying is he was he was leading the study of communication with, whales, with yeah, dolphins. Absolutely. That was what he was leading with whales. Yes, he was. Yes. He was okay. actually leading. He was, but he was living in Maui and we could not invite him. We had to. And so he came along as an observer. He, he wasn't participating in, in the scientific. There was no scientific research. The question yeah. was, would whales respond to music? And apparently they were. So it gets better. It gets better. It gets better. Okay. It, it okay. does improve. Okay. So uh, then I, as I'm playing, I guess the whales would come underneath the boat because as they, their big bodies would make the boat rock from one place to the other. I was just wondering about that. Yeah. How was the boat holding up? Well, they weren't really near the boat when they were doing the somersaults. They were close mm -hmm. to it, but not. But they were coming under the boat and every, no one had a problem with it. And I could feel as I'm playing the piano, you know, boats rocking and oh, those are the whales, really cool. So the divers come up again to change their thing. This time the diver says, they're not just doing somersaults, they're doing an underwater ballet. That's what I they can't imagine doing. 60, 60 tons of, uh, of humpback whales doing ballet, dancing under the water. It, it, it was very graceful uh, and uh, full of ease and grace and beauty. Uh, there was no doubt that they were really dancing, playing, listening and responding to 
the music they were hearing. Well, they obviously knew that they were in a safe place, that there was absolutely no danger. Oh, yes, of course. These yeah, absolutely. Were. The waters had been safe for many years after we signed yeah. the treaty. Uh, and so, no, they, 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 didn't, they knew there was no danger. They knew now that we were doing something that had never been done. They could hear human music. And they liked it because it had harmony to it. Even though the piano was so way out of tune, I brought it to relative attunement, as I said. But at the same time, the, um, the whales could, could respond to what they heard. Yeah, and the they were picking up tones. The underwater ballet was just mm -hmm. um, so amazing. So I... Uh, I'm so happy. I, I've run out of material. Uh, all the music I've ever created, I, I didn't know anything more, and I didn't play pop tunes. So now I had to start playing my music all over again. <laughs> but that was okay. I, I was happy doing it. And uh, no one seems to be bothered by it. Certainly nobody on the strip, and I don't think the whales cared. Uh, yeah. So I played some more. And uh, it, the whole episode lasted about three and a half hours, playing wow. for the whale. And did you see the film after, like when you came back to the yeah, to I land? Sure did. did you I, see the film? I, that's the next part of the story. So uh, let me, I'll finish with this part, then I'll get to the next part, okay? Okay. So, um, okay, so finally, uh, John says, okay, that's it. They've gone away. Uh, there's no more whales. Let's... It's already afternoon. We, we, we went out there in the late morning. Uh, it was now maybe three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So we uh, went back to Lahaina, all happy as can be. Uh, we couldn't see the film yet. They were just in the, in, you know, in the cases. Uh, and that um, I had played live music for Wells at Sea. And I realized that this was, up to that point in my life, the greatest moment I had ever experienced in life. How I can't could imagine it. How could it I think for, the, I, I think Paul, for those of us who haven't had access to uh, the life in the sea, to just even imagine it is like, wow. It's just, an amazing scene to have in my mind's eye as you're speaking of seeing these 60 ton animals, marine animals doing their thing with that sound surrounding it. Yeah. Yeah.
To find out more about Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation, go to waterfallgiving.com.